Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 19th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I'm going to present part 25 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, and it is titled, a Tale of Two Torments. The title should become obvious. The reasons for the title should become obvious as we proceed. <clears throat> One thing which we find most striking in Solomon's descriptions on the practices and origin of idolatry here in wisdom is that the general patterns of behavior which lead to idolatry do not change, and they have not changed even over the last 3,000 years. In ancient times, men, worshipping the works of their own hands, had created idols which they said to be gods. Then, whether they were artificers seeking to make more money from their craft, or whether they pretended to be priests of some god, for their own profit, they deceived others into worshiping their idols while offering them vain hope in a dead object. And of course, a third way to idolatry is the idolatry of kings, where men were compelled by force or by threat of force to worship the idols of the kings. But today, men worship commercial icons such as Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, or perhaps some sports figures who endorse certain products. Men worship these idols by going out and engaging in commerce on account of those images which were created by others for the sake of their own profit. At the same time, they teach their children to worship those images through the anticipation that they may receive things from them. And when the children find that they are not real, or that they are only mere men who often fail to live up to their expectations, and who cannot really do much beyond playing a game anyway, the children may wonder why their parents taught them lies. So the love of money certainly is the root of all evil, as we saw near the end of Wisdom chapter 15. Yahweh God often punishes men with their own delusions. So here in Wisdom, Solomon made another analogy, which should be one of the lessons of history, which is the fact that in the plagues of Egypt, the Egyptians were punished with some of the same beasts which they themselves had once worshipped. The Egyptians and other enemies of the ancient Israelites were punished for their destruction. But whenever Israel was punished for their disobedience, it was for their correction, and there was mercy in their punishment. So this is a tale of two torments, or at least punishments inflicted upon different men for entirely different reasons. So in turn, as we began Wisdom chapter 16, we saw that the Israelites, who demanded meat rather than manna, were fed with meat of a strange taste, which were evidently the birds which the Greeks had called 
quail mothers and not actually quails, which the Bible translations based on the Masoretic text would lead one to believe. Admittedly, <clears throat> I'm sorry, admittedly, the Greek version of the account as it is provided by Flavius Josephus in his Antiquities, Book 3, identified the birds as quails. So there was a difference of opinion as to the identity of these birds in early times. However, as we had also discussed, quails themselves having long been a common food in Egypt, they could not have been birds of a strange taste. So we would prefer reading quail mothers, as the Greek text reads here in Wisdom and as it also is in the Septuagint. These quail mothers will be mentioned once more by Solomon later on in his work in Wisdom chapter 19, where he wrote that they were provided for, for their contentment, as the King James Version translated the word paramuthia, which can also mean encouragement, exhortation, or consolation, among other things. In any event, Solomon extended his lesson to a comparison which illustrates how Yahweh did not have mercy on the Egyptians while he fed the children of Israel in spite of the fact that they were fed with meat of a strange taste, from which they should have learned to be content with the manna that he had initially provided them. So he wrote in verse 4 of Wisdom chapter 16, where we had left off with our own translation, for it was necessary for them that while unmerciful poverty came upon those ruling as tyrants, meaning the Egyptians, on the other hand, to these alone, meaning the Israelites, it was shown how their enemies had been tormented. So Solomon implies that by having to eat meat of a strange taste, the children of Israel were sustained in the desert, while also being reminded of the plagues of Egypt, that Yahweh God was actually having mercy on them, which he had not extended to the Egyptians. The Israelites may have eaten quail mothers, but the Egyptians had no such consolation in the plagues of blood frogs, and locusts, and other things which they had suffered. Now, as we commence with Wisdom chapter 16, Solomon recounts some of the other punishments which came upon the children of Israel in their wanderings in the desert, while also continuing to compare the divergent fate which was suffered by the Egyptians. So we commence with Wisdom, chapter 16, verse 5. For when the horrible fierceness of beasts came upon these, meaning the Israelites, <clears throat> and they perished with the stings of crooked serpents, thy wrath endured not forever. And once again, at the risk of being tedious, and although the sense of the King James translation is acceptable, for the purpose of clarity, we will offer our own translation. 
for even when a terrible wrath of beasts came upon them. And they were destroyed by the bites of crooked serpents. Did your wrath, I'm sorry, your wrath did not abide to an end. I had left did in there twice when I reworded my translation. First, notice that once again, Solomon addresses Yahweh God directly in the second person where he wrote your wrath. And he shall do so several times in this chapter. As we have often mentioned since it began, these entire last 11 chapters of wisdom were written to represent the prayer which Solomon had first made to Yahweh for wisdom upon his having become king over his people Israel. Of course, there is no record of such an event as this ever having befallen the Egyptians. But here the Israelites are still the subject as the focus changed to them at the end of verse 4. When the children of Israel had once again rebelled in the desert, as we read in Numbers chapter 21, Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against thee. Pray unto Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. I guess the same thing should happen again today when people finally repent, admit they've sinned, and pray that Yahweh take away the serpents. All of these damn Jews and Arabs and all of these other aliens that are biting us, and we don't even know it. And Moses prayed for the people. So, in regard of the result of this prayer by Moses, Solomon writes in verse 6, But they were troubled for a small season, that they might be admonished, having a sign of salvation to put them in remembrance of the commandment of thy law, and remaining more faithful to the original word order. We would also translate this verse to read more literally. But for an admonishment, they were troubled for a while, having a token of salvation for a reminder of the commandment of your law. The sign or token of salvation to which Solomon refers is the seraph, the serpent of brass which Moses fashioned in the wilderness, where we read in the same chapter of Numbers that as a result of his prayer, Yahweh said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. But the Greek word, symbolon, which was translated as sign, where we have token, has an even deeper meaning. Among ancient Greeks, it was an object broken in half 
and divided between two parties, which, when presented by one to another at some point in the future, proved the identity of each party. If we break a plate randomly and it comes out into two pieces, it would be very, very difficult to break a ceramic plate the same way our plate was broken, where our plate being broken would fit right back together into a whole plate, and then we would know that, yes, this is the man that I had made this treaty with or this contract with many years ago or many months ago. So the word symbolon was also used later to describe a seal and then a guarantee which a seal may represent, and even used in the plural, symbola, to describe a treaty between two states providing for the necessary for the security of one another's citizens. Therefore, the brazen serpent was a sign guaranteeing the safety of any Israelite who would follow the command of Yahweh to gaze upon it if they were bitten by the serpent, or by a serpent, I should say. And showing their obedience to him, they would he would assure their temporal salvation. So we see a description of that same thing in wisdom, in verse 7. For he that turned himself toward it was not saved by the thing that he saw, but by thee that art the Savior of all. And in this thou madest thine enemies confess that it is thou who deliverest from all evil. The pronoun hemon is our, not your. It shouldn't be thine enemies. It should be our enemies. Therefore, we would translate verse 8 more accurately to read. Then also in this, you had persuaded our enemies that you are the deliverer from every evil. While Solomon chose to use this event as an illustration of how Yahweh had persuaded the enemies of Israel that he was with his people. Later, in Numbers chapter 21, we read of the defeat of the Amorites. And then in chapter 22, we read, and this happens, this event with the fiery serpents happens at the beginning of Numbers chapter 21. So towards the end, we read of the defeat of the Amorites. And then in Numbers chapter 22, we, 22, we read, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people, because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. So at this point, Balak had hired the prophet Balaam to curse the people, hoping to overcome the blessings of God which were upon them, and that endeavor also ultimately failed. The book of Joshua also attests that Yahweh had indeed persuaded the enemies of ancient Israel that he was their deliverer through the things which he had done on their account. This is found in Joshua chapter 2, 
in the words attributed to Rahab, the innkeeper at Jericho who had preserved the spies. And she said unto the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we, I'm sorry, I keep tripping over myself tonight. I think I'm trying to speak too fast. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Examples of the fact that the enemies of the children of Israel indeed were persuaded that Yahweh was with them. Now, in reference to the brazen serpent, as Solomon had written here, Christ himself had likewise referred to the same event, and he said, as it is recorded in John chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the wilderness, whoever had believed the word of Yahweh through Moses to gaze upon the serpent in the desert had temporal life. But whoever would look upon Christ, allegorically referring to whoever of Israel would look to Christ through his gospel, has an assurance of eternal life. Only the children of Israel had need for the serpent of brass, and Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They alone, having the promises, they alone have need of him. That also explains the tale of two torments, why Yahweh would punish the Egyptians for their destruction and the Israelites for their correction. As a digression, the fulfillment of the destruction of ancient Egypt, which was an ongoing process, was announced in Isaiah 43, verse 3. And it is evident unto this very day. There we read, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. It is evident in the same manner which we see of the Ethiopian in Jeremiah chapter 13. The fulfillment of the destruction of Egypt is evident. And this was written after that fulfillment, where it says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba, having been overrun with Nubians, having been given up to Nubians, they were forever destroyed. Now, returning once again to the account of the brazen serpent, 
We must also note that there is one more element of symbolism here which should be mentioned. The high priests and adversaries of Christ, being serpents themselves, as he had identified them, while the children of Israel in the desert were granted temporal salvation as Moses raised a brazen serpent, the children of Israel collectively were granted everlasting salvation when the serpents had raised Christ in that same manner. So we read in John chapter 8, Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am He. So next, in reference to the mercy which the children of Israel were granted from the bite of the serpents, Solomon once again compares the torments of Egypt in verse 9 of Wisdom chapter 16. For them, the bitings of grasshoppers and flies killed. Neither was there found any remedy for their life, for they were worthy to be punished by such. Comparing the torments of Egypt to the bitings of the serpents, which he will mention again in verse 10. The Egyptians were worthy to be punished by the bites of grasshoppers and flies, which actually, according to Solomon, had killed them or killed many of them. Ostensibly, they were worthy to be punished by such things, as they had been idolaters who had worshipped such things, as Solomon had described earlier in Wisdom chapter 12, where he wrote, Wherefore, whereas men have lived dissolutely and unrighteously, thou, meaning Yahweh, has tormented them with their own abominations. Their own abominations. According to Liddell and Scott, the Greek word akris may refer to a grasshopper, a locust, or a cricket. Some species of orthoptera as they are called, do occasionally bite even humans, but the bites are generally seen as harmless. They also become cannibalistic when they swarm. Yet the locusts which plagued Egypt were evidently not the usual locusts. As we read in, as we read in Exodus chapter 10, <clears throat> And Yahweh said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail had left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt. And Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up all over the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them, there were no such locusts as they. Neither after them shall be such. Yet even these locusts did not necessarily eat Egyptians, but rather they ate all the foliage remaining in the land. So perhaps... 
from that sort of biting did they kill the Egyptians, who then died of salvation of starvation. I'm sorry. As for the flies, which were not necessarily house flies as we know them, but perhaps some other small flying insect which bites, they were one of the earlier of the plagues upon Egypt, as we read in Exodus chapter 8, in verse 24. And Yahweh did so, and there came a grievous swarm of flies, and those words are in italics, so they're not in the Hebrew. There came a grievous swarm into the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted by reason of the swarm. And the King James Version continually adds of flies in italics. So the words are of the words wherever it says of flies in Exodus chapter 8 are always in italics. So the swarm may refer to any of the many flying types of insects. The word translated as swarm in Exodus chapter 8, which is Arab, implies an assortment of flying insects, a mixture of insects, and not a single species. The same word is translated with the phrase diverse sorts of flies. In the 78th Psalm, where once again we read of the plagues of Egypt, and it says, he sent diverse sorts of flies among them, and they aren't necessarily flies, as in house flies, which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. Then, in the 105th Psalm, he spake, and there came diverse sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. Here in Florida, as a digression, we have been bitten by these tiny yellow flies, one of several species which are sometimes also called deer flies, which inject numbing poisons into the skin and which leave large welts, swelling, and bruises that sometimes last for days. I know this firsthand. So we can imagine the damage that dense swarms of such flies could incur upon a people, although the Exodus account itself does not elaborate beyond that passage on what exactly what sort of flies these may be. The plagues of Egypt have a deeper meaning than most people may suspect. As the idolatry of the Egyptians was taken to the extent of making many common elements of nature into gods to be worshipped for one reason or another. The god of the Nile River was named Happy, H-A-P-I, Happy. And Yahweh turned the Nile into blood to torment the Egyptians, so he tormented them with their own abominations. Heket was the Egyptian goddess of birth and fertility, Heket, H-E-K-E-T. And she was pictured as a frog, or as a woman with the head of a frog. 
and a plague of frogs also tormented the Egyptians. They were tormented with their own abominations. Then there was a sort of flying insect, which does bite and feed off of human and animal flesh, and which the Egyptians did worship, and that is the scarab, or dung beetle. According to an article titled Scarab Beetles, found in an Encyclopedia of Entomology, published by Springer Netherlands in 2008, scarab beetles are adapted to most habitats, and they can be fungivores, herbivores, necrophagus, coprophagus, saprophagus, and sometimes even carnivores. So they eat mushrooms, which is a fungivore, live plants, which is a herbivore, dead decomposing plants or animals, which are necrophagus and saprophagus, and dung, which is what a coprophaga is, a dung eater, and on top of eating all of those things, they eat living flesh, which is what a carnivore does, and they were worshipped by the Egyptians. There are sufficient other parallels between the plagues of Egypt and the idols of the ancient Egyptians to understand that Solomon is correct where he had written that Yahweh God had indeed tormented them with their own abominations, with the things that they had worshipped in their idolatry. Now, about to complete his comparison of these events, Solomon once again turns back to discuss the biting snakes in the desert in verse 10 of Wisdom, chapter 16. But my sons, not the very teeth of venomous dragons overcame, for thy mercy was ever by them and healed them. The Greek word translated as was ever by them is a form of the verb antiparaerkomahi, which is literally to pass by on the opposite side, meaning that the mercy of God was on the opposite side of the venomous dragons, which would, of course, be the side of the Israelites. Of course, the analogy which Solomon had made is that the Egyptians were destroyed by the slightest of creatures, such as beetles and locusts, which would not be expected to harm men to such an extent, while the Israelites suffered a much greater and more imminent threat on account of Yahweh their God. So he continues in regard to them. For they were pricked that they should remember thy words, and were quickly saved, that not falling into deep forgetfulness, they might be continually mindful of thy goodness. And here there is a play on words, which is wanting in English. The word for pricked, the verb egkentrizo, can literally mean pricked. It's accompanied 
in the clause which follows with the adverb axios, which in this content context is quickly, but which literally is sharply or pointedly. Then the last clause of the verse we would more literally render they might be they might not be distracted from your goodness is more literal by the time of the account of numbers chapter 21 which is where these fiery serpents beset the children of israel by the time of that event it had been quite some time since the children of israel had received the large Sinai and had agreed to keep it. Doing that, they also received the words announcing the punishments which would come upon them if they did not keep that to which they had agreed. So being punished by Yahweh, but receiving his mercy before he actually did away with them as he had a right to do under the law, that alone should have reminded them of his goodness. So once again, that is a tale of two torments, that Yahweh destroys the enemies of his people, even while he must often also punish his own people for their correction. Now Solomon continues in respect of this later torment. And he says, For it was neither herb nor mollifying plaster that restored them to health. But thy word, O Lord, which healeth all things. While herbs and medicinal plasters may help to heal many illnesses, they are not necessary to heal any illness, even if Yahweh himself had advised men to do certain things in order to be healed. For example, upon the sickness of Hezekiah, he had repented. And Yahweh God promised to add 15 years to his life. So we read in 2 Kings chapter 20 that the prophet Isaiah brought him that message from God. And Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. And they took and laid it on the boil. And he recovered. A lump of figs laid on a boil. But in any event, as Solomon now attests, in verse 13 of Wisdom, chapter 16. For thou hast power of life and death. Thou leadest to the gates of hell and bringest up again. And the word for hell here is the Greek word Hades or Hades, which was more than just the grave and was perceived by the Greeks as being the underworld abode of the spirits of the dead, conscious spirits of the dead in early Greek literature, as well as Babylonian and Sumerian literature. In Matthew chapter 16, Yahshua Christ is recorded as having used the same phrase, gates of Hades, where he said, as it is in the King James Version, that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Unfortunately, the Bible version 
that Bible version translated two different words with different meanings as hell, thereby causing much confusion, the other word being Gehenna, which means something entirely different. In the Old Testament, there are other declarations of the possibility of resurrection from the dead. First, in the 16th Psalm, where David had written, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Then again in the 49th Psalm, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. There are many other examples of this. There are examples, for instance, in Isaiah. But we will offer one more example from Solomon, from Proverbs chapter 15. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and the word spoken in due season, how good is it? The way of life is above to the wise, that he may depart from hell beneath. And in the Septuagint, the word for hell is Hades. The Hebrew word Sheol, bearing the same meaning as Hades, it is also a source of confusion as it is translated alternately as either grave or hell in the King James Version. There are words for grave, but there are words for the underworld abode of the dead, as it was seen by all of the ancient branches of our race. In ancient Greek, the underworld, or netherworld, was called Tartarus, and the god who ruled over it was named Hades. In early England and in Germanic mythology, Hela was the goddess who ruled over Niflheim, the underworld abode of the dead, the world of darkness. Among both Greeks and Germans, it is evident that the name of the idol which ruled over or which they perceive to have ruled over the underworld abode of the dead, the name of the idol ultimately became synonymous with the place itself. But where Christ and the apostles had used the term Hades, they were not committing idolatry. Rather, they were speaking in terms that ordinary Greek speakers or readers could understand. And therefore, Hades must represent what those same Greek speakers or readers imagined it to mean, which was not merely the grave, but the abode of the spirits of the dead. <coughs> Wisdom chapter 16, verse 14. A man indeed killeth through his malice, and the spirit, when it is gone forth, returns not, neither the soul received up cometh again. And once again, for the sake of clarity, we would translate this verse more literally to read, and indeed, a man kills in his wickedness, but he is not able to return the departed spirit, nor restore the life taken. And here, wisdom distinguishes between words which are actually close synonyms, pneuma and suke. And while the distinction is not apparent 
everywhere that these words appear in scripture, we find generally that the distinction is upheld. It is pneuma, which is always used to describe the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and therefore also the eternal Spirit imparted to man. Yet, suke much more often denotes the human life, the force which is perceived to animate all creatures, including man. So here, this Greek version of wisdom also distinguishes between the spirit of a man and his temporal life in that same manner. So when a man's suke is taken, his pneuma merely departs and therefore Solomon concludes in verse 15, but it is not possible to escape thine hand. As Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 6, it is the spirit, or pneuma, that quickeneth. Using another term, the term zoopoieo, which means to make alive. Paul used the same words, pneuma and zoopoieo, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, where he wrote, but the Spirit gives life. Likewise, Paul had written in Romans chapter 8, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In those cases, the Spirit, the word for Spirit, is pneuma. And in other places where we see such phrases as Spirit of life, the word is also pneuma. In Hebrew, the same distinction between pneuma and suke usually holds true with the words ruach and nephesh, which are also synonyms, even though in the King James Version, the word nephesh is often translated as soul, a reference to the life of either man or beast. So the soul is the life, where the pneuma is the eternal spirit. The pneuma of a man, living and departing a body after the suke or life, has been destroyed. It is the pneuma which gives life, and therefore even a dead man cannot escape the hand of God. Thusly, Christ had also professed, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now Solomon turns again to describe another aspect of the torment of the enemies of Israel. For the ungodly that denied to know thee were scourged by the strength of thine arm with strange rains, hails, and showers were they persecuted that they could not avoid and through fire were they consumed. And the word for ungodly is 
asebes, which is impious. The phrase that they could not avoid is from the Greek adjective aparahidio. I'm sorry, aparahitetus, which is not to be moved by prayer or inexorable, which is something impossible to stop or prevent. Here I would translate the adjective as an adverb and the last half of the verse to read. Being persecuted unavoidably, then in fire were they consumed. The fire to which Solomon refers must be the pillar of fire or during the daytime the pillar of smoke which represented the presence of Yahweh leaving the children of Israel out of Egypt as we read in Exodus chapter 13. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. And they took their journey from Sukkoth, and encamped in Etham, in the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And now Solomon elaborates on the fire while clarifying his meaning in verse 17. For which is to be most wondered at? The fire had more force in the water that quenches all things for the world fights for the righteous. And the word for fights is a noun, hupermachus, which is a defender. The last clause is more literally translated, for the world is a defender of the righteous. Here Solomon is making an allegory in his profession that the natural elements of creation, which is the cosmos, here, would defend the righteous when it was actually Yahweh God himself who used those elements to signify his presence as he had defended Israel. For that reason, contrary to expectation, the pillar of fire was victorious even in the waters which would be expected to extinguish the fire. The event to which Solomon refers is attested in Exodus chapter 14. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed, because it was leaving them, and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And Yahweh caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea 
dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went in the midst into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them, on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, Yahweh looked under the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels and that drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. And in all of these accounts, there are a lot of necessary anthropomorphisms which shouldn't be understood literally. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, and Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. So in reference to the fire, Solomon continues. For some time the flame was mitigated that it might not burn up the beasts that were sent against the ungodly but themselves might see and perceive that they were persecuted with the judgment of God. And for the sake of clarity, we will also translate this verse. For indeed, at times, the flame was softened in order that it would not consume the creatures sent against the impious. But though seeing, they know that they were attacked by the judgment of God. Solomon is making a general statement concerning the pillar of fire in reference to things which happened after the escape from Egypt. This we see in Numbers chapter 14, where after one of the several rebellions of the children of Israel, we read, And Yahweh said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be, ere they believe me, or before they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make thee. And Yahweh is testing Moses here. And Moses does not accept the enticement. And will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. And Moses said unto Yahweh, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou art Lord among his people. That thou, Yahweh, art among his people. That thou, Yahweh, art seen face to face. And that thy cloud stands over them. And that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, 
then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore unto them. Therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, Yahweh is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. So Yahweh remained with Israel through at least most of the time recorded in the book of Numbers. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 33, it seems to be recounting this event from Numbers chapter 14 in hindsight, where Moses makes a recollection and speaks of Yahweh, who went in the way before you, to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night, to show you by what way you should go, and in a cloud by day. So the pillar of smoke and fire must have departed by that time, Deuteronomy 133. But then, in Deuteronomy 31.15, we see yet another mention where it says, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Behold, thy days approach that thou must die. Call Joshua, and present yourselves in the tabernacle of the congregation, that I may give him a charge. And Moses and Joshua went, and presented themselves in the tabernacle of the congregation. And Yahweh appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar of a cloud. And the pillar of the cloud stood over the door of the tabernacle. So while the pillar of fire remained with Israel throughout many of the events recorded in the book of Numbers, it must have been presented, it must have been present whenever Israel encountered their enemies in those early years, which accounts for Solomon's statement here in verse 18. But now in verse 19, he once again contrasts the experience of the Egyptians. And at another time, it burns even in the midst of water above the power of fire, that it might destroy the fruits of an unjust land. By the fruits of an unjust land, Solomon seems to be referring allegorically to the Egyptian army which was destroyed in the converging waters of the Red Sea. Now, in comparison of his allegory of the fruits of the land of Egypt, Solomon draws a portrait of the manna that the children of Israel had eaten in the desert, which is much more favorable than we find in the books of Moses. Instead, whereof, instead of being destroyed because they were the fruits of an unjust land, instead, whereof, thou fedest thine own people with angels' food, 
and did send them from heaven bread prepared without their labor, able to content every man's delight and agreeing to every taste. We have already, what we have also translated this passage. So I will read it, even though the sense of the King James Version is acceptable. Instead of which, feeding your people the food of angels, then you provided bread from heaven for them without labor, able for all pleasure and every agreeable taste. The initial reaction of the children of Israel to the manna is depicted quite differently, but perhaps it was at least in part due to the influence of the aliens among them. Where we read in Numbers chapter 11, and the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof as the color of bdellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills, or beat it in a mortar, and baked it in pans, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Regardless of this difference in perspective, Solomon continues and says, For thy sustenance declare thy sweetness unto thy children, and serving to the appetite of the eater, or literally the taker, the taker of the manna, tempered or transformed itself to every man's liking. Twice in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it is explained that the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years so that they would be humbled. There they were told that it was Yahweh who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy later end. So perhaps we could imagine that being humbled in that manner they became accustomed to the manna and realized that it was not so bad after all. So it is written in the 78th Psalm, where it speaks of the anger of Yahweh towards Israel because of their rebellion. Therefore Yahweh heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn or the grain of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. Meat meaning food, not flesh. The psalm was written by Asaph, who, like Solomon here, evidently had heard a more pleasant memory of the manna than the experience which the 
book of Numbers evokes. Now Solomon has been making an allegory of the fire of Yahweh, and particularly of the fire, the pillar of fire, which led the children of Israel through the wilderness, whereby the fire was strong even in the water when it was meant to destroy the enemies of Israel, but more tolerable or softer so that it could be withstood by the beasts which were sent against those enemies. But now he returns to the torments of Egypt once again, extending the same allegory to the fire mixed with hail in the plagues of Egypt. But snow and ice endured in the fire and melted not, that they might know that fire burning in the hail and sparkling in the rain did destroy the fruits of the enemies. This we see in Exodus chapter 9 from verse 22. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man and upon beast, and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground. And Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. And now Solomon adds, But this again did even forget his own strength, that the righteous might be nourished. And this seems to be an allusion to what we read in the very next verse of Exodus chapter 9, where it says, Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hell. Now, as Solomon had already exclaimed, that the cosmos would defend the righteous, referring to the elements of nature, he makes a similar statement about the elements of nature describing or, or using the word catesis, which is the creature or creation as the weapon of God. Once again, illustrating the tale of two torments, where he says, for the creature that serves thee, the catesis or creation that serves thee, who art the maker, increases his strength against the unrighteous for their punishment and abates his strength for the benefit of such as put their trust in thee. And here Solomon is drawing a conclusion as he has made allegories illustrating this in the plagues of Egypt as opposed to the, to the eating of quails or quail mothers by the Israelites. And then in the pillar of fire that destroyed the Egyptian army in the water, and also in the hailstorms which rained down upon the Egyptians. Thus, continuing his conclusion, he says of the ketesis or creation or creature, as it is in the King James Version, 
Therefore, even then, it was altered into all fashions and was obedient to thy grace that nourishes all things according to the desire of them that had need. And once again, we would more literally translate this verse to read, on which account at that time also, for transforming all things within your all-nourishing gift, that word all-nourishing coming from a compound Greek word, pantotropho. Pantotropho is panto or all, and trophos, which is nourishing. And it's an adjective here, pantotropho. Your all-nourishing gift served for the favor of those in want. The verb metaluo is literally to get by mining and generally to, to explore. But as Liddell and Scott also noted in Wisdom chapter 4, verse 12, it is to undermine in the context where it reads, and the wandering of desire undermines or subverts the innocent mind. To dig under something is to subvert it. So the word took on that meaning. However, here in this context, where it is in the passive voice, Liddell and Scott suggest converted. But since it is describing the elements of creation, we would prefer transformed, that Yahweh may transform the elements of creation, his all-nourishing gift, to suit and to serve his purposes. Here we also interpreted the word thalasis, not as will, which is its literal meaning, but as goodwill or favor, as it is used in another work by Solomon in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 35, where the meaning is close to the intention here, and it says, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of Yahweh, meaning the thalasis of Yahweh, the same word which I would translate as favor here, which the King James Version has desire. The illustrations of Solomon, the illustrations Solomon had made here, inform us that the creation of God can be whatever he wants it to be. As to whether men should be punished by its elements or being granted mercy would be able to tolerate or withstand its elements. So if man does not survive the elements of creation, that also is a judgment from God. And now he gives the reason for the transformation, the transforming of all things within your all-nourishing gift. That thy children, O Yahweh, or O Lord, whom thou lovest, might know that it is not the growing of fruits that nourishes man, but that it is thy word which preserves them that put their trust in thee. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, we will read the other passage which speaks of the children of Israel eating manna for the sake of being humbled. 
And Christ himself had cited a portion of this passage when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. So there's a correlation there, right? And thou shalt remember all the way which Yahweh thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh does man live. It is thy word which preserves them that put their trust in thee. Now making an illustration of the different degrees of fire by which something may be destroyed. In verse 27, For that which was destroyed of the fire, that which was not destroyed of the fire, being warmed with a little sunbeam, soon melted away. We would translate this verse to read, For that which is by fire not destroyed, simply by a little ray of the sun being warmed, was melted. And of course, Solomon's talking about the hail. As the account reads in Exodus chapter 9, the hailstones, which were mixed with fire, were not destroyed, but rather had managed to withstand the fire, contrary to expectation. But then, as we do not read in the account of Exodus, but which Solomon must have inferred, the hail ultimately melted in the warmth of the sun, which he illustrates as being trivial compared with the fire in which it had originally been mingled. So now he concludes that it might be known that we must prevent the sun to give thee thanks and that the day spring pray unto thee. And this passage definitely needs to be retranslated. And we would translate it more literally to read, so that it may be known that it is necessary to rise before the sun to give you thanks and to entreat you at the dawning of light. And it seems to have been a custom, but not a requirement among the ancient Israelites to pray first at dawn. As we read in the 113th Psalm, from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, Yahweh's name is to be praised. However, even this and other passages which read from the rising of the sun are more likely references to the east from the rising of the sun under the going down of the same, from the east to the west, Yahweh's name is to be praised. So the interpretations are problematical. Now for the final verse of the chapter. For the hope of the unthankful shall melt away as the winter's hoarfrost, and shall run away as unprofitable water. So Solomon compares the hope of the unthankful or ungrateful to that of the ice that melts at the light of day. 
which is an apt description of those who hate Yahweh God. In John chapter 3, we read, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So here, concerning these same men, Solomon writes in chapter 17, in the verses which follow, that no power of the fire might give them light. So, of course, we shall continue that as we discuss chapter 17 of wisdom, hopefully, Yahweh willing, in the very near future. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.